Welcome to Behind the Peaks podcast, where we celebrate and make visible the professionals from Himalayan community in America by uncovering the challenges, difficulties, as well as the accomplishments that they have encountered along the journey. If you are someone pursuing higher studies in America and aspire to enter the professional world, or you are already in the professional world, look no further. The unique life stories of Himalayan professionals will not only inspire you, but also remind you that you are not alone. I'm your host, Tenzin Jigme, and for our first guest, we have someone who is an analyst at JetBlue Airways, graduated with Bachelor's of Business Administration at Baruch College, and went into Harvard Business Online School. He's also a distinguished public speaker, excelling at annual speech contests and moderating a range of events, had multiple internships at various companies, very much involved in the Himalayan community, and most importantly, a professional. Tenzing Sherpa, thank you for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm, I'm honored. Definitely. Pleasure. How are you doing today? Good, brother. It was a beautiful day in Queens, man. You know, just hanging out on a Sunday. Um, I was hanging out with my parents earlier today. Sunday's usually, you know, got, got some family time. But, um, but yeah, no, happy to be here, man. Tell me about yourself, who you are, what do you do, and so forth. I'll tell you what, man. It's not going to be as good as that introduction. I'll tell you how much. No pressure. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I... Um, Born in Nepal, Kathmandu, uh, came to came to the U.S. just about two years old or so. So still a baby. Grew up in the U.S. Um, right here in Astoria, Queens. Um, sort of very much identify as a native New Yorker. Uh, currently at JetBlue Airways, as you've mentioned. Um, and I'm just a, uh, like you said, man, just a Himalayan American. So the conversation will revolve around three aspects of your life, your childhood, your present, and what you're going to do in the future. We'll start where you are right now. What is an analyst, and how did you initially get interested in becoming an analyst? Cool. So the analyst level role uh, is my title. Uh, the team that I'm on is the Continuous Improvement and PMO team at JetBlue. So basically, the way I describe it to most folks, uh, high level is very similar to a management consultant. Uh, but it's we're sort of the internal consultants, if you will. Um, what I mean by that is we get pulled in by different departments throughout the company uh, to analyze their procedures, uh, both from a business perspective and a policy perspective, um, just to find sort of efficiencies or, or sort of align those processes with whichever goals they want to sort of throw at us or task us with. Um, so to be a little bit more specific, currently I'm, I'm working on a project that has to do with fuel. So. As an airline, fuel is the largest cost uh, and, and sort of finding ways of how we can be more efficient with the way we use uh, and uh, and teach our crew members to use or, or direct our crew members to use fuel. Could you walk us down through a day in your life or if every day changes a week in your life? Sure. So as an analyst, again, on the, um, on the team that I'm on, it's very much similar to... Um, a project manager. Uh, what I mean by that is we sort of have, so we've got this fuel efficiency thing going on. Um, and within that program or within the initiative, rather, we have several different work streams. So it's sort of, if you can imagine, um, you know, just to really simplify it, back in school when you had like group projects, you had a group project for maybe each class, you know, five classes a day and five classes a, a semester. Um, it's really how do we manage these group projects simultaneously, uh, which are all sort of targeted toward different goals, 
um, and make sure that they all sort of align with the timelines of the overall project. So that kind of like really simplifies the the function of my role, uh, which is like managing these group projects, quote unquote. Um, but again, it's all sort of tied into this collective project as, as fuel savings. What other roles are there working with you? Yeah, so I work very closely with flight operations right now. Um, and that's just because of the nature of the project. Um, so within flight operations, we have senior captains who sort of transitioned onto the corporate side. Um, and those are the folks who really have all the knowledge of what pilots do day in and day out. Um, and they're sort of our thought partners when we look at policies and say, well, if we make changes to the timing of one of their procedures, how does that affect the pilot in, in the real world? You know, so these are the folks that kind of offer those insights. Um, on the other hand, we have a lot of engineers, industrial engineers, people who support us when we think about, well, once we do aim to save that time in the operation, what does that actually mean from an analytical perspective of how JetBlue operates as an airline? So they kind of take the small wins that we look at, say five minutes per departure, and they kind of expand that and push the magnifying glass up and say, well, what does that mean as, uh, what does that mean to JetBlue's operation as a whole uh, from a timing perspective? And so, so we've got those two angles and everybody in between are just sort of the stakeholders that we help out or they help us out really to push these projects. And so there's sort of just, you know, the analysts and senior analysts and managers of different teams like sustainability and, and sort of all the folks that we need to sort of align with to make sure we're doing right by the company. If you're in high school or college, is there a specific major one can pursue or that is not necessary? Yeah, I, so I'll, I'll, I'll venture to say it's not necessary. Um, okay. You know, just to, just to paint a picture of, of the folks that I work with, again, okay. pilots, industrial engineers, and sort of everybody in between. And so a lot of the other analysts, uh, senior analysts, and even managers, pretty much anybody, any of the folks you work with in a company like this, uh, and when I say a company like this, I mean mostly outside of the sort of the traditional finance accounting routes that you take. People will have a very broad uh, spectrum of backgrounds, uh, whether educational or professional. And so, I mean, just to give an example, I mean, like I, I work with folks who are at the analyst to senior analyst level who come from theater or like, you know, just like the public sector I and mean, people come from all around. And, right. and, and so right. that's why, and I mean, I told like, I try to tell my, my younger cousins and, and family members, it's like, it does matter what you study. <laughs> that does matter. And it makes a big difference. Um, but it's sort of everything. And this is my take everything up to, um, up to actually starting your career, uh, whether it be, you know, until high school or college, it sort of just shapes your your perspective of the world. Uh, what I mean by that is, so I so and I know we're going to get to education a little bit, but I was a marketing and psychology major at Baruch when I graduated, and so those schools of thought really just provided me with sort of a certain set of frameworks to look at the world in, right? So I have a perspective of marketing and psychology. So what does that actually mean, right? So anytime I think about something, I sort of have this natural inclination to think about. Well, how does this resonate with people? Why would it resonate with people? Um, and in which way does it resonate with people? And so it's sort of these, these high-level frameworks that allow me, to, um, allow me to think about things, whether problems or solutions, in a, certain, in a certain light. So taking that back to your question of like, does it matter what you study to be an analyst? 
It does, but not in the way that most people think that it does. Meaning, you don't have to be a business graduate to become an analyst in, in a private in the private sector. Um, what you do need is a good sense of the way you see the world, a good sense of this is my perspective, this is why, and this is how I'm going to use it to sort of uh, make decisions and, and sort of operate in the world. It seems like you have various kinds of people working with you. So, what kind of personality is generally pertinent in your field? So, I'll break it down a couple of different levels. So, I'd say starting off with the industry, right? So, being in an airline, I'll tell you why I got started in an airline. I, I had this experience of, you know, again, I, I wanted to follow the marketing route, um, and I wanted to be somewhere with a really good brand, uh, with but also with a really good work culture. And so, you know, JetBlue definitely represents both of those things. And so, I was more sort of attracted to JetBlue because of its brand versus the fact that it was an airline. The All the, the, the traveling and everything was kind of just like the cherry on top that made it a better decision for me. But for JetBlue specifically, I do see that a lot of folks are tied in or, or drawn in uh, because of the brand. Uh, it's sort of this household brand, uh, almost like the sweetheart of airlines. We have some understanding of where you are standing right now with what you do. However, I think it is very important that we understand where you started. So many things that matters. <laughs> you were born in Nepal, then you moved to the States very early in your life. Do you recall anything from that time? Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, born in, in Nepal, um, but I was still a baby. So, again, I, I didn't really have any, uh, didn't form any memories at the time. Um, I do remember sort of the first, uh, what, what I will say is my first memories um, were were sort of the uh, the mid '90s in New York City, you know. So that was sort of the the that was when I started kind of becoming a person. Um, and before that, I was kind of just being you know transitioned over. But but yes, but I still was sort of very I very much identified with the the immigrant experience. And so I mean I'm an immigrant myself, and and also son of immigrants. Although I was raised in in New York, but I think that it's sort of Acknowledging the fact that I was an immigrant very early on um, kind of set the tone for how I operated as a uh, as a child, as an adolescent, as a teenager, and, and then on. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the, the background that, uh, for me. The reason why it was so apparent uh, and obvious for me, internally at least, was because we didn't... We, meaning my family, we didn't move to the typical Jackson Heights or Elmers, um, not too far off. But so I, so we settled in Astoria uh, very early on, um, where we, I think we might have had a handful of, of folks that, uh, a million people that were in Astoria, but very few. Um, so although it didn't make that much of an impact uh, on the macro scale, for me and my brother, so I went to very predominantly Greek. Hispanic, European uh, schools. Uh, you know, growing up in Astoria, I mean, the, the majority of the population is Greek and Italian. Um, so I grew up with a, basically all that to say, I grew up with a lot of folks that didn't look like me. Right. Um, and so that's, I think that's why very early on I developed this this identity of like, oh, I'm not like everyone else. Right. So you feel like an outsider. Yeah. In your school, were you surrounded by people from our community? Yeah, predominantly. So I kind of had different faces uh, for elementary school. Um, so we, 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 my family and I, we, we moved around a few times growing up, but it was all within Astoria. 
So the first time we sort of settled on our own as a family unit was a little bit toward the uh, the Queensbridge projects uh, by Astoria, right by the Costco area. And so um, I would take a bus to school, uh, to school and back. And the, the school bus that I was on every day for elementary school sort of started around 21st Street where Tribal Park is. Um, and it went around and picked me up. So I was always the first person on the bus, the first person off the bus because that's, that's where the route started. So they would pick me up and then go through the projects and pick up predominantly Hispanic and African-American kids. And so they were really sort of my first social group as a child. <laughs> so fast forward. So after elementary school, I went to uh, 141, which is right by the, uh, the story of Dimars area. And so that's where it was very heavily European, specifically Greek uh, and Italian. And it was just sort of like this, this huge shift in demographics for me, um, which it was still. It still wasn't people that looked like me. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> but it was. It was. It was different. And so. Um, and so I just had like this whole, almost like this whole uh, micro culture shift right. again. Um, so you think about like a child who uh, sort of you know is again born in Nepal, comes here, starts to find or starts to understand society um, in phases. In that time period, how were you as a student? So I was always a decent student. Um, the award that I always consistently won was perfect attendance. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and that's not, and I won't take any credit for that. That's just my parents being immigrants and making sure that I went to school every single day um, and being too afraid uh, to cut classes uh, for high school and stuff like that. But um, well, yeah, no, I mean, jokes aside, I, I, uh, I was a decent student. Um, you know, I had my I had my struggles with uh, math uh, growing up, which again, kind of like being a um, an anomaly with the Asian uh, stereotypes of just being a ways at math and science. Um, my favorite uh, subjects were always history and sort of within the liberal arts. As you were going through different phases in that time period, what did you want it to be when you grew up? Ooh, so as a kid, I wanted yeah. to be several things. Um, so I think. The, f- the first thing is, and I'll say this, um, a shout out to my brother. I know he's going to be listening to this. The first thing I wanted to be, like, first thing I really had dreams of, man. <laughs> that's right. That's Basketball right. Players? That's my brother. <laughs> I had the hoop dreams. My, uh, so my, so my brother's my, my brother five years older than me. Um, and so he grew up playing basketball. And so he was always like, you know, you have a brother, like a big brother. and He's like. Superman, you know what I mean? Like right. you have a big brother, your right. big brother is Superman. Right. And so right. like you, you you see the things that he does or like the way that he speaks and the way that he acts and the way that he dressed, like as a younger sibling, anybody who's listening who's a younger sibling, they could probably relate. Like they, it, whether you admit it or not, you right. emulate right. your older same, siblings, same. you know what I mean? Right. And so um, so he would always play basketball and, and I know that was, and still to this day, it's very close to him as it is to me too. But I, I, I was like, you know, yeah, I was at that stage where I was like, I was naive and I was like, man, like I can do whatever I want in this world. You know what I mean? I was like, I want to play basketball. I want to be on the Knicks. So they, yeah, I, I started off with hoop jeans very early on. Um, still play basketball to this day, obviously not right. as seriously, but um, that was the first thing I wanted to do. Um, 
And then the second and I'd say the second and last naive uh, dream that I had was actually to be in music. So I'm a I'm a huge hip hop junkie. Okay. Uh, love love hip hop. Love music in general, but specifically hip hop. Um, and so I wanted to be like I wanted to be like Pharrell, man. Like I wanted to be yeah, okay. like the okay. superstar producers, like making these 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 songs for people. Um, but like I <laughs> like I never took a music class. Like I <laughs> I was just so infatuated with like the identity of being the, like this super cool person who makes music for a right. living. You know what I mean? Is it the fame? I'll say this very honestly. It actually wasn't the fame. It was okay. actually it was actually um, what tied me to or what drew me to uh, uh, to basketball and um, and and music. I think the the common thread between those two is just like this sense of freedom. And this is something that I I obviously I, I'm just to make it clear I'm not I'm not going towards uh, being being an NBA player or a producer <laughs> anymore. Just to make people are probably thinking like oh this guy I don't know. Um, but I, I think the common thread that I that I took away from that from those two experiences that I still have you have now and focus very much on is uh, the sense of freedom. And what I mean by freedom uh, is really just the the autonomy to make your own decisions and decide how your life is going to to right. sort of play a part. Right. You know, um, and I, I think that you know some people can see it as being contradictory and saying like, hey, well, like you work a corporate job now, like maybe right. this is not. In alignment with what you want to do, which to that, like, I actually do have very real conversations with people about this, and like, and and I'm a victim of this too, where, where people have this sort of this preconception of working in a corporate environment being like just sort of like a slave, like you know, people say like a nine to five slave. I can see where they're coming from because I was that person at, at one time, you know, and so I understand the concerns, I understand the anxiety around being sort of uh, tied to a job and, and, and doing the same thing over and over again. But what I say about that is, I mean, dude, we, we mean, the, you know, Himalayan Americans, like we came from a place where these types of opportunities to have a stable job were not as apparent, you know what I mean? And so I see it as, hey man, I get to travel, you know, I get to make money. I had to, I get to have a consistent paycheck, uh, you know, sort of work with the same people every day. I'm not going to say that it's perfect. I'm not going to sit here and, you know, lie to the kids and be like, hey, you know what? Like, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. That's not the case. But what I am, what I am very confident in saying, and I can say with a clear conscience is I am developing skills with, uh, with, with these projects that, I, that, that I'm working on that I can take away for the rest of my life. You know, like I, you know, God forbid, like I could lose my job tomorrow, and or I could go to a different company tomorrow. Right. Uh, but the experience and, and and knowledge that I'm gaining from working on an airline, specifically with the team that I'm on right now, nobody can take away from me. You know, and so it's almost like I see it as like being paid to learn. Taking it back to your dreams of being a basketball player and producer at that time, what role did your family play? Uh, so I'll take it back to uh, my brother again. Um, Juju, I love you for this, man. He, so he, again, he was five years, he's five years older than me. And so he was always sort of like one life stage ahead of me. Meaning like when I started middle school, he was finishing middle school. When I started high school, he was finishing high school, you know, so on and so forth. Um, he kind of like took the heat <laughs> for me, you know what I'm saying? Like he, he was the one like, the, as the older sibling, like my parents always saw him as like, whatever you do. Tenzing is going to do. So we need to make sure we get you right <laughs> before we can focus on Tenzing because he has time. You know what I mean? 
So, so my brother, he always had, he was always like at the forefront of, of everything that my parents were trying to do with both of us. You know, he sort of took the, took the heat with um, <laughs> wanting to pursue basketball. I never really had that much of, of pushback, uh, directly at least. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I saw, Throughout the years, like I saw the, the the toll that it took on on his perspective of life, and so he so he actually took it much farther than much further than I would have ever dreamed to. He ended up playing uh, in Nepal, and like you know, he took a, took some time out to do that. But like he again, like he he was like, and this is definitely a, a big lesson that I, that I learned from him, uh, just on a macro scale, like it's commitment, man. Like I. Like I got the secondary wave of like, you know, like setting me and my brother straight of like trying to get a job, you know, good job and like getting a stable life and everything. But he, he just, he just took it and was like, I understand, like, I love you, you know, mom and dad, but like, I, I got to do this. Right. I got to pursue it. So he, you know, he, he pursued it and like, he really gave a real shot um, in doing it. And so I didn't really get that much heat. I, I got to, I got to, yeah, I got to shout out my brother for that. <laughs> you have gone through your elementary school, middle school. And now you're trying to enter high school. Are you still the same or have you changed your ways? So, okay. So when I, when I transitioned into high school, I hit a point where I was seeing like, okay, I, I know I could do well in school. Um, and I just want to sort of do the things that I want almost. Right. And so that's where I think I really sort of embodied that like class clown persona being like man for high school like high school was 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 so fun actually too much fun i had had too much fun in high school and so yeah going into high school i was just i was just having fun man to be honest with you and that actually that's a way that kind of sets up um college days where uh, by the time i was ready to to graduate high school i didn't know where i wanted to go for college and i'm going to take the, the responsibility for that it was definitely my fault just because I wasn't uh, taking the initiative to find out like, well, where am I going to go next? Like, what, what am I going to do? Because until that point, like, you're kind of just like drifting, right? You're kind of okay. just like falling away. You go to, to elementary school, middle school, high school, um, and everything is done for you. But for high school, I'm sorry, for college is when you have to like set the stone your, yourself. Um, and obviously, you know, my parents, uh, they, my dad went to college back in Nepal, but they, they weren't sort of that familiar with the system here. My brother was, so he offered some advice as well. But it was just like, oh, okay, well, like it's time to go to college. Um, I think law is kind of interesting. Like, <laughs> that, and that was really like, and, right. and it's funny to think about it now, but like that was literally the decision process. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, well, like there's nothing, there was no, okay, well, like, how, you know, what do I have to score in the SAT to get to this school? Right, and like, right. who do I need to speak to? Uh, what kind of uh, you know, college inf- information sessions do I have to join? Right. Like, it was none of that. It was literally just like, okay, well, like, what am I interested in? Like, okay. oh, John Jay has a pretty good uh, <laughs> uh, path to, to law school. Like, maybe I'll do that. And like, that's literally what happened. And so when I got to John Jay, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. I was at John Jay for uh, three semesters and decided that I did not want to go to law school because at that time I kind of I grew a little bit of brains and I started talking to people who did go to law school, <laughs> or people who in law school, uh, and started learning about the actual experience and what it's actually like. Um, was like you know this is not exactly what I want to do, and so decided that I wanted to get into business uh, for, through the route of marketing. And so looked at a couple of schools, transitioned to Baruch uh, just because like financially it made too much sense. And Baruch's a great school, by the way. I don't want to discount it at all. It's a fantastic school. But yeah, that, that was sort of the, the, the route that I took for high school into college. At that part of your life, how did your maturity evolve? 
I was definitely a lot more committed uh, as a as a scholar. Like I I I was super into the books. Like I really did. And again, like I'm hitting what like eighteen, nineteen, twenty. Like I I was understanding that hey, I'm becoming an adult now. Right. You know, and right. like I need to get my stuff straight and really just sort of like checking myself. So I was uh, I was fortunate in that um, I had a point in my maturity. Right. That was in alignment with like what I needed to do at that time. And so that's why I was able to. And I mean, like, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'm not going to take all the credit. Like, shout out. I have a lot of mentors within my family and without or, or outside uh, specific. I think the main person who had a really big impact on me making that decision outside of my brother was uh, Dawa Sherpa. He, so he was a student at Baruch at the time. He's a couple years older than me. But yeah, so he was at Baruch at the time and sort of like kind of walked me through what it was like being in Baruch and what it was like being a business student. Okay. Um, so he, yeah, he was a big factor in, in making that decision. But I, I, I sort of like say all that to, to paint a picture of like, I was in this stage where I knew I was so confident uh, and I knew that I had to really like get my stuff together and like find a trajectory. In Baruch, now you're getting interested in the field of business. Talk to us about how that unfolded. Um, so yeah, again, I think... Um, it was mainly like a couple of people that were around me, uh, just a few years older, especially uh, Dawa, who kind of like showed me, okay, you want to get into business, like these are the things you can do, or these are the things you can pursue. Baruch is known for having a ton of accounting and finance majors. Naturally, right? It's a business school, but specifically within Baruch, there are, uh, it, it's, it's predominantly accounting and finance majors. So I got into Baruch knowing I wanted to do marketing, and this is, it sounds funny, kind of saying it out loud but so i i transferred to baruch to pursue marketing but then until graduating um i was like just so heavily focused on getting into finance because <laughs> i got in and like everybody else is doing it and it's like oh man like i know like i don't really want to do it but like i'm you know i'm talking to like recent graduates and they're like oh i'm making this much i'm like oh my god <laughs> you know what i mean so it's like i i, I was like I, I gotta admit i was definitely um i was definitely hooked and so um i had i had several internships throughout uh throughout undergrad but um where i was sort of um getting ready to when i was getting ready to graduate i was interning at uh, ubs wealth management front office stuff and so i did that for a few months and was ready to pursue a full-time there okay. But then, you know, I wanted to get into, uh, I wanted to do some traveling. And so I'm actually so happy that I took that time uh, after after graduating, uh, after finishing my undergrad to travel. Because if I hadn't done that, I would have 100% committed to being in finance. Which, like, I'm not trying to make it sound like a nightmare for people who, you know, for the younger people. But, like, right. just for me, like, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I knew it. And like, like while I was there as an intern, I knew this wasn't what I wanted to do. But like, I was a young guy. I was like, oh man, I just want to make money. You know what I mean? Like, that's all, that's all I wanted at that for time. Sure, sure. Before we move on to your traveling, how did you obtain internships during college? So I'll, I'll take a few steps back. So I, I took, um, so I went through a few internships throughout undergrad. So just to kind of like name off the top of my head. So I was at Sony Music. Uh, with the R- with the RCA uh, record label, I was with uh, uh, World Technology Corp, which is sort of like the small uh, technology distributor in New York. I did UBS, and I did one, but it's escaping me. One more that escaping me that uh, I can't remember at the time. But I think the so out of those, the 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 most enjoyable uh, was definitely Sony Music. Okay. 
Um, so I was there uh, as an intern on the digital sales team for RCA Records. And so that was a time where, I don't know if you guys are, are familiar with, uh, with, with hip-hop in general, but ASAP Rocky was mm-hmm. coming out with his second album. Um, and that was when, like, he sort of solidified. And it's funny that we're talking about ASAP Rocky. We got, like, all the government stuff going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just a, just a coincidence. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, so ASAP Rocky was coming out pretty strong. Uh, G-Eazy was coming out pretty strong. So you had, like, these really good artists, uh, really right. solid artists coming out and right. sort of, like, establishing their careers. So it was just a really exciting time to be at the record label. Right. And so there I was just doing like very basic data analysis for the sales team. But it was cool because like the artists would like come in to, into the office every now and then. And right. I'm just like geeking out. I'm like this hip hop fan. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is that Rocky mm-hmm. Ocean. Um, so yeah, they were like coming in and out of the office. From there, I actually, so I, I, I took a part-time internship at the same time I was with Sony um, on the street team for, uh, for Tidal. So I don't know if you guys know, but like, so so Tidal is very similar to uh, Spotify's music streaming right, service right. that uh, Jay Z is a part owner of, right. and it was it was housed in the um, the Rockefeller Records office. Um, so that was really cool too. And that didn't last too long, but that was really cool because I was there for a few months, and our job was really just to like promote the the streaming service within the college campuses. Right, right. Um, so they would like give us a lot of marketing collateral to like just kind of put around the the, the schools and stuff, but. That was really cool because like Jay-Z and Beyonce were always in the office. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And like the first, I remember the first time um, they had like this, um, like the, the, uh, the orientation meeting for all the interns and I was there and they're like sort of like going through the orientation and like the, um, the, uh, the managers of the program were sort of along the side of the, along the side of the, uh, the boardroom. And I, I, we could all tell that they're sort of like whispering to each other, right? They're like saying something. And uh, they're kind of talking around the room, and it got to me, and I and I heard what they were saying. They were like, "Oh, like Jay Z, Beyonce are in the other room, <laughs> like they're in the, the room right next to us." So as as interns, we're like, "Oh my God, Jay Z, Beyonce are right next to us." But but so it was just it was just like things like that that made it a very um, very very enjoyable experience as as the music nerd, as the hip hop nerd to me. Now I would like to dive into your public speaking. You have done a variety of events so far. How did it all start? It. Uh, that's a great question. I so I so although I was like always sort of a bit of a class clown and like always kind of uh, silly and, and and goofy growing up, I was very shy. So I was very shy. Uh, I was kind of like a little pudgy and a little overweight growing okay. up. Okay. But again, it was always like I was always kind of like that, like that funny chubby guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I so I found comfort in um, in expressing myself through humor. And then when I hit uh, when I hit college, uh, freshman year of college, we had to take all this. All the freshmen had to take, I think it was intro to public speaking, like some very very basic right. class. Right. And it's it's one of those classes that like nobody takes seriously. It's like okay, sure. like you write a few speeches, you For you know sure. you learn how to 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 write uh, a spoken word essay, etc. And you kind of just like zip through it. Mm. No one actually pursues it. Mm. Um, but again, you talked about opportunity. Like I saw that opportunity as oh, this is where I can sort of formalize the way that I speak and express myself through through conversation. So I took that class probably the most seriously out of all the classes that I took in all the freshmen, all of college probably, to be wow. honest with you. Um, and, and it was also a big credit to my professor. So he was uh, very heavily uh, involved in the public speaking community in New York. And there's sort of so it's a CUNY school, so there's sort of these these contests that go on every right. semester, every year, and and it sort of it starts like it starts school wide, then CUNY wide, New York wide, etc. And so he was, I think he was like part of the, the the committee on the board or something like that. 
And so he saw that I was like really taking it seriously. He caught on to, to my effort in the class and was like, hey, you know, I, you know, I've got this thing where we host every semester um, a public speaking competition within John Jay. So that was just school wide. He goes, are you interested? And I was like, no, but like, I'll, I'll do it if you think it's <laughs> worth it. So, so he convinced me to do it. Right. Um, so I competed there. Um, so I won first place and I was like, kind of just, I, I surprised myself to be honest with you. I was right. like, this, this, there's gotta be a mistake. Like they, you guys don't really, like, I'm not a good speaker, but so I didn't know this. So I, at the time, so I won first place and the you know, people are congratulating me and everything. And the same professor who signed me up for it, he goes, Oh, you know, he, he's like so excited. He goes, Oh, this is great. Now you can, now you, we can really get started, uh, start prepping for, uh, the citywide competition. Right. And I was like, citywide competition? <laughs> what are you talking about? Dude, I'm just, try- I'm just trying to get a good grade in your right, class, man. Right. I'm not trying to, you know, take this that far. He's like, No, 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 dude. He's like, You'll be great. You'll be great. So he, he spoke me, he talked me into that too. Right. Um, so he actually like, he, so he was super excited because I, I suppose like there weren't really that many other people that were really taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. And so he just gave me like, like personal training, uh, for several weeks. Um, and so he, so, so he, not, so he signed me up for the citywide competition and this was, so these were representatives for basically everybody who won first place in their schools, uh, throughout New York city. And so like you know, looking around the room, like, it, like all these, these, it was like predominantly New York city. I think, it, I think. I believe they had private schools too. I, I don't think it was only like CUNY SUNYs. But yeah, so I, I did that and, and I ended up winning first base in that too. And I was like, at that at that point, like at the first time with John Jay, like I confused myself and I was like, oh, whatever, I got lucky. But this time, like I was looking at the other people performing and I was like, dude, these people are awesome. Like they're very good, very talented people. And somehow I I won first place in that competition as well. And it just like... It sort of solidified my my confidence in speaking and in, 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 uh, communicating my thoughts and ideas, right. and so that that was sort of like from a from an educational perspective how I sort of built my confidence there, and then, dude, man, the the magic of social media. Like I had posted um, about that just because I was like super excited right. at that point. Right. I posted on Facebook, and then uh, that was when like all of my cousins and like extended family and friends, you know, how things go around right. like. People were coming, oh, congratulations, Tenzing. Uh, um, and then uh, and then one day, just a couple of days after I posted that, Nurbu Sherpa, um, shout out Nurbu there, he, so uh, Nurbu Sherpa, he was actually uh, one of the first people in our community to really, for real, pursue hip hop. I mean, he, I, you know, I mean, he had, you know, he had his, he had his career, he had his day job and everything, but like he would, you know, put on concerts for his rap and everything. Like he... When you, when you talk about entertainment and everything, he's one of the OGs in our community, man. Oh, wow. You got you definitely got to look look up uh, some yeah, stuff sure. about Nubu. Yeah, definitely a great person to talk to. So he actually, so he reached out to me because um, he had this this fundraiser going on for Empower One, which is a, uh, a nonprofit that he was he was heading at that time. And he was like, hey, I you know I've got this this movie screening um, for this movie called Visa Girl. So it was like this really popular movie at that time um, that was made in Nepal and and was uh, like just gaining a lot of popularity here. So he was hosting a screening for the benefit of his nonprofit. And he's like, hey, I'm, you know, I've got the screening going on. We, you know, we locked in a venue at NYU. Like, it's going to be this big deal. Uh, and we're looking for an MC. He's like, do you have experience MCing? Right. I was like, no, I don't. I don't. I, that's not something I want to do. But he's like, no, no, no. He's like, I saw your video. I saw your post. And I think you'll be great. So he, so he pulled me in to, to be an MC there. And it was an awesome experience. Man. That was, so that was my first time. 
Yeah, that was my first time emceeing. Um, but in terms of from the from the perspective of public speaking, like that was my first time doing something that was in like a very social, casual, fun environment. Because prior to that, I was being like formally trained right. to deliver like persuasive speeches right. and, and so right. on and so forth. But now, like you know, people are there to have a good time, and right. I'm supposed to like really just set the mood and set the tone, tell jokes and stuff. Sure. And so it was an awesome experience because it was. The audience were were people that I was familiar with, people mm-hmm. from our community, mm-hmm. Nepali, Tibetans, mm-hmm. etc. And it was it was just such a, a, I mean, big credit to the movie and everybody who put it together as well. But it was just such a great event, um, and it had a little bit of media coverage as well. And so right. from there, like similarly how to how uh, to Nubadai reached out to me about getting involved with his project, like all these people started reaching out to me. Wow about what they're doing. They're like, oh, we need a speaker. We need a speaker. Like, this is what we were looking for, you know, somebody who could do this. And so, like, opportunities kind of built in. That's how that's how the momentum kind of transitioned from wow. school to uh, being involved in the community. So, yeah, man, that's, that's sort of the, the inception of that. That class really impacted you. That was the impetus for you to pursue public speaking. And so what I've seen you is in Machik Weekend, NSSP, and so forth. How did you get involved with them? Oh, man, so big... Big shout out to both of those organizations and everybody associated. Man, I, 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 dude, I love everybody in both of those groups, man. So, okay, so NSP, uh, NSP has been around um, for a long time and was started by some of my older cousins. So we put together a public speaking workshop for high school, uh, college, so high school and college kids as well as uh, young professionals. Um, and we did that the summer of, I think it's probably like probably five years ago or something like that. And so that was really cool because we had a lot of we had a lot of kids who, who really had like the same challenges that I did. A lot of kids who were really shy and like their parents forced them to go there because they you know they had a little bit of like a speaking issue. And that was really cool because that was the first time that I that I was serving my community from a perspective uh, or from a position of competence right. in something, right? And so it, it, the conversation really went. You are you as 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 a Sherpa American uh, young man have this skill that we see as valuable, and we need you to you know de- uh, to devote your time to share that skill back to the greater community. Obviously, this is not how the actual conversation went, but this is how this is sort of the the underlying understanding of of my relationship with the community, and through public speaking, this is where I sort of understood my position and and what my relationship was as an individual within the community um because when once they once once people recognize a skill or recognize some sort of value uh that you have or that you have to offer it it provides an avenue of of defining that defining your relationship to the community this is who you are to us and this is why you're important to us this is why you you can bring value to us us being the, the larger community and so that i know that's sort of like getting really sort of deep into the the relationship of it but this is this is really from a from a perspective of like uh self identity how i sort of started seeing myself as a person who could provide value back to the community um so i started doing that and then uh so you asked about magic as well so magic big shout out to magic man she she dr losan rapia she has brought Magic to I mean just an amazing level man I and 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 she's absolutely if you can find time with her oh, yes, absolutely yes. somebody who would just blow uh, this uh, podcast out of the water yes. man you get 
five minutes with her, man. She right. will like whatever you're looking for <laughs> in terms of like you've got a project going on or like you're trying to meet certain people right. or like get affiliated right. with some people. Dude, she will just throw so many resources at you. Yeah. Literally cannot even catch up. Like every time I speak with her, man, I come up with all these notes of like people I should reach out to and like stuff that I should look up. Man, she, I mean, her and her sister, man, they they are just incredible people. But yeah, so uh, pulling back to, to Magic. So so I started volunteering with Magic just because of, of like cousins who were, who were getting involved and stuff. So I, I really just started because I, I it sounded like an interesting idea, Magic Weekend. Um, and so I, 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 it was just like very basic volunteering, like handing out right. uh, name tags and stuff like that. Right. Um, but then every, like I loved it so much that every year I started just increasing my contribution in terms of being a volunteer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I brought up the idea of having workshops kind of similar mm-hmm. to what right. I did with NSP. And I said, well... You know, we had we're we're sort of like pitching ideas for what to do with Magic, uh, Magic Weekend, and how to sort of provide the the, the most value back to the audience. Um, and I said, well, you know, we have all these like affluent people in the audience, or like getting involved, or like people that we know in our circles. You know, why don't we get them to offer some of those skills back to our community? And and and, and you know, the large uh, segment of the Magic uh, audience are you know high school to college students or young professionals, um, young people in general, and so. Um, so I was like, you know, like I can start, like I've done a public speaking course before and I, like I'm happy to offer my time and, and experience there. Um, and then we could sort of just start building up from there. Like why don't we get people from the arts or like from all these different industries. And so, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, I'm not trying to take all the credit for starting up the the, uh, the workshop series, but that's definitely something that I, I really wanted to contribute. Um, and so I did the workshop series uh, a couple years ago. And then from there, I think Lausanne was like, man, like, I think it would be a good idea for you to MC next year. <laughs> like, you know, she's like, you know, you're sort of a natural. And like, she really sort of just like, uh, sort of like blew the flame on that. Um, and so I ended up, uh, I ended up MCing it uh, last year, um, last November for Magic Weekend. And I mean, it was, it was an amazing experience, man. I just, the level of energy in that room, man, for, for a whole weekend, Friday to Sunday, is just incredible. Like you see all these people who look like you. Definitely eat the same thing as you eat who have you know so many core values um that are in alignment uh in, in that room and so um it's just it's just an amazing experience man interesting yeah because i uh, that was the first time i actually uh been in the magic weekend I gotcha okay uh, you were emceeing oh nice yeah, oh that was your first time no, oh first gotcha time. nice because yeah. they they contacted us to dance actually oh that's remember? right yeah, yeah. So we were, we were oh, starting gotcha. off the test show by actually Oh, no, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So oh, that was, yeah. That was the first time I saw you. And I think I've seen you before, but I think okay. I've seen you. Uh, oh, I saw you sure. that day uh, emceeing and you did public work, workshop. I did attend yeah. it, actually. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Oh, damn. <laughs> I did get a chance awesome, to attend it. It was a packed room, actually, if I can remember. Yeah. <laughs> really packed room. It ranged from high school students to, like, elderly. Yeah. Students. Thanks for joining, man. That was, that was great, actually. For someone who doesn't know, NSSP stands for Network of Sherpa Students and Professionals. It's a volunteer organization that strives to build community among Sherpa students, graduates, and professionals. Machik is a nonprofit whose mission is to incubate social innovation for Tibet. Their work entails developing opportunities for education, addressing challenges in Tibetan community, celebrating innovative ideas and professionals, and much more. I came across Machik through their annual Machik Weekend last year. 
Machik Weekend is a Tibet Ideas Festival. What I personally enjoyed is that it allowed me to connect with great Tibetan minds from Tibet. It's basically a gathering for dialogue, exploration, and understanding among people who share passion for service and civic engagement. This year, Machik Weekend will be from November 8 to 10 in New York City. Anyone interested can register at their website and have the opportunity to learn and be inspired. Even if you are not from New York City, because people from outside of New York City, from different states, come to Machik Weekend. Yeah, a lot. Of, I, I think, uh, um, yeah. so, I mean, one of my cousins, um, Harun, she, I'm sure she's probably going to listen to you. Shout out to Harun. Um, she, so she lives in Minnesota and it was so cool because I'm actually glad you brought this up. What they did was they had, um, they, they, they formed a group for students who wanted to join Matic Weekend and, you know, they didn't have the, the means of doing so because, you know, they had transportation, right. lodging, all that stuff. Um, so they, they, they started fundraising. They were like, Hey, you know, we're a group of like however many students we want to go to Matic Weekend. This is why. This is how much we need. And they just like, it was like crowd, crowd source. Like wow. they just went around the community and like, wow. hey, we're raising funds. Like we really want to go to Magic Weekend. And I'm not sure exactly what they did uh, for, for fundraising. It's probably like bake sales. I don't know. You know what I mean? Oh, right. But like the important thing is like they did it, man. Right. You know what I mean? It kind of comes back to my, my, my point of like opportunity, man. Right. They just saw this thing that they really wanted to get involved with. And they were like, we're going to make it happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they came out. So yeah, absolutely. Like you have, you have folks from all over. Going back to how you piqued your interest in public speaking, what I see in our community is that we don't tend to be the best at public speaking. What do you think about that? How should we navigate or tackle this? So I think there are, I think there are several layers to that. I think that, um, you know, I'll point out like uh, something that I read recently from the, the bamboo ceiling, I forget the name of the author, but a very, very, very popular book about Asians and Asian Americans within, um, within the American, with the corporate America or like education. So we have this, uh, and not all of us, but a, a lot of us have this attitude of like respecting your elders, right. respecting anyone who's more senior than you or more capable than you, mm-hmm. which that exists globally. But the way that we, do so is through not speaking up when someone else is speaking, right. not challenging people's ideas, not not being the person who offers a, a different perspective in a room. And I've I've certainly sort of hit a lot of challenges in my career with with these concepts. Um, and I'm I'm only pointing these out because these are things that I realized that I did or that I've sort of um, found challenging to overcome and sort of consciously worked on it. And so, um, you know, obviously not everyone identifies with the typical Asian American persona of being quiet and timid or, 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 or what have you. But just to, you know, for the sake of answering your question, I think that um, we have to sort of recognize and really respect the way that our, let's say this, the way that our, the sense of respect that we, that we communicate um, needs really needs to be analyzed and broken down. And what I mean by that is, if you are communicating respect uh, for authority in in the way of you know holding your tongue, not speaking out, not offering your perspective, that becomes a detriment when it comes to you know, working in corporate America for right. for say. I'll sort of speak through my experience with this, where you know, tying back to my current job 
as, as an analyst for the continuous improvement team, I, I'm almost expected to really sort of pick at my stakeholders when I'm trying to get information or when we're trying to sort of hold meetings um, to offer a different example. Like these are things that are seen as, uh, as positives that are seen as things that, that you should do that one should do. And one should always question the, the topics and one should always offer a different experience. One should always speak up. And I think that uh, it's something that needs to be really broken down individually. I can't say that, um, it's something that we can sort of like, I mean, we could speak about it as, as an Asian American, as the Asian American community, but I think that it all comes down to how do you uh, want to operate in the world as an individual right. and, and knowing which components of your personality come from being Asian, Asian American yeah. is very important, but that's not the end of it. You know, it, it takes, it takes practice. It takes understanding you know, the, 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 the way that folks react to you when you speak a certain way. It's really, I think, just to sort of summarize all of that, it really comes down to being introspective and knowing who you are and knowing the type of person you want to be and the type of person that you actually are. Because sometimes there's a discrepancy between those two, right? Like I, I, want, to, uh, I want to conduct myself in a certain way and I want people to react to my behavior in a certain way, sometimes there's a little bit of spacing between where it's like, oh, well, why are these people treating me differently? I, I thought I was acting the way that uh, I should be, you know, or that I want to be. And so it, it really comes down to introspective, man. Like, who are you? How do you want people to sort of react to you? And it's, it's just a continuous adjustment after that. Have you established some sort of a routine before you speak in public? Or maybe some techniques that you employ? Yeah, so like any of the formal engagements that I have, I do have a very sort of strict routine. Um, if you want me to get into it, I'll get into it. Sure. I, I can, I'm happy to share. Okay, so uh, basically what I do is the, the number one thing that always comes up when I speak to people about uh, public speaking and when they ask questions about like what the challenges are, it's always it's always, oh, I get really nervous, right? I get really nervous. My nerves flare up. Whenever I speak, like my voice cracks or like I feel my hand shaking, I get really red, like all these uh, symptoms. And, you know, people will ask me like, well, like, how, how do you, how do you speak in front of people and not get nervous? And like, how do you deal with that? How do you get rid of your, your nerves? The answer is I don't, I don't, I don't like every single time I do something, I get nervous, man. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like I'm, it's a, it's a, it's a natural human reaction to get nervous. The way that I cope with it, the way that I use it to my advantage, um, this is a big, big tip for folks who, who are listening. You have to understand that when you get nervous, your body has the same physiological response as to when you're getting excited. So when you're nervous about something, about doing something, what happens? You start, you, you might start shaking. You might start, you know, your voice starts cracking and, and you feel like all this pent up energy and you feel it in your stomach, right? You're just like, I, I just wanted to get it over with, right? You're kind of like shaking. Um, when you get really excited about something, it's the same exact response. So your body is going through the same exact physiological features as when you're very nervous about something, you know, very excited about something, you know, I'm jumping, I'm, oh man, I want to do this. I'm so excited. I want to do it. It's really understanding and managing the way that your body's, uh, the way that your body is operating. And so when I tell people like, you know, so a lot of people get more nervous uh, or some people get more nervous than others um, and they feel it in their body more than others. 
I just tell them that means you want to express yourself through your body. Right. And like, you know, this whole time, you know, I'm using my hand, you know, obviously folks don't have the video, but like I'm using my hands when I right. speak and I'm very, this is me literally living out those nerves. This is me expressing myself through, through my body. And so I say that to say like, you don't have to be a, you don't have to be a clown, right? You don't have to right. be like this circus freak who's like jumping around. And, right. I mean, there are people like that. Don't get me wrong. But like, what I say is, you know, when you're getting, when you're going up nervous, like, uh, and, and and you can think about it too. Like when you see a nervous speaker and you're looking at them in, on the stage, like what do they usually do? They're very, they're very sort of closed off. They're, you know, to say the mic's very close to their face. Right. Their hands are sort of like behind them or in their pockets. Right. They kind of deflate, mm-hmm. right? Uh, their, their body deflates. And so, once they start really getting nervous and you hear it in their voice and everything, and they're, they're starting to shake, that's really because their body, your body wants to express it. You know what I mean? Your body wants to move around and wants to experience itself. It wants to, right. you know, get that blood flowing. Um, and so that's, so that's something that I, that I always try to remind myself, uh, before I, before I go up on stage. And what I do is uh, something that I actually took from, um, I believe his name is the, uh, I believe Winhoff, the Winhoff method is, so I'll take, I'll take like a regular shower, right? Like, you know, get it right. It's like a really good shower, uh, wash up and everything. And what I do is I fire up the uh, I fire up the water to as cold as it can get. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then, so I and then so obviously like once that hits you, and here's another thing: when you take a really cold shower, your body also experiences again. It goes through the same physiological experience as when you're very nervous and very excited. So once that cold water hits me, I'm. <sighs> I'm panting. I'm like, you know, my body's shaking. It's going crazy. And I sort of just like, I really just like hype myself and sort of like right. rev up myself like that. Right. Um, and that's actually, it comes from um, like a lot of different, um, I think that's rooted in like the Nordic background of like taking ice baths and stuff like that. So there's like a lot of ancient history. I won't get into that stuff, but, um, and, and I'll admit it, there's a little bit of bro science in there too. So <laughs> I won't do too much. <laughs> But uh, but the point is to to really prime yourself, you prime your body to 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 manage that physiological response. Um, so that's what I do, just in, just to sort of like control the nerves. Um, and so uh, the you know the main piece of feedback there, and the main takeaway there is everybody gets nervous, man. It's just what is what do those nerves mean, and how are you going to deal with them? Obviously, everyone is going to be nervous, but you're saying to recognize that that is something you have experienced in your life in other forms or ways and to express them. And it's not, again, it's, it, it takes practice. It right. takes practice. Right. And it, it, um, I think Bruce Lee in one of his interviews, I, I, I'm a huge Bruce Lee fan. Right. I think Bruce Lee said in one of his uh, most famous interviews, he goes, you know, Kung Fu, Kung Fu is just a way of, ex- uh, a way of expressing yourself honestly. Mm-hmm. And what I got from that is like, it doesn't matter what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Kung Fu, boxing, you know, yoga, like whatever it is, these disciplines are just ways of expressing oneself through the body. And, you know, you might think, oh, wait, like when I, when I go up on stage and, and give a speech, like I'm not worried about my body. I'm worried about what I'm saying. Like I'm worried about the message that I'm giving, right? It's more about the communication. All like literally everything that leads up to the point where you open your mouth sets the tone for what actually gets communicated when it comes to, in, you know, in, in, in a person conversation or a speech. The way you walk up to the stage, the way you stand, the way you hold the mic, the way, you know, all these things. And, and I forget the, the, the research on this or the data on this, uh, but there was research done where they had speakers, they had two sets of speakers conveying the same message verbally. 
Um, but one group, the control group had um, sort of like stood like in a very sort of open posture and right. in a very animated uh, and communicated in a very animated way. Um, and the other just sat on a chair and really just like read off of the, uh, the, the script. And so the audiences, um, the audiences had, you know, when they were surveyed, had said that they understood and resonated a lot more with the speakers who were very expressive with their bodies and everything. But the script was the same. The message was exactly the same, you know, but they were like, no, yeah, I just understood, you know, the, the, the expressive guys a lot, that much more. And that's sort of like a very high level, you know, study. there's like millions of these types of studies um, that support the case. But my, my whole point in saying that is body language goes so, so, uh, it goes a very long way. Um, and so not only to the audience, but again, to yourself, because I just, for, for me, like, I just feel that much more, I feel like I'm getting my cr- point across that much more when I'm you know, using my hands right, or like right, when I'm sort of like right. kind of going around the room and, and, and right. using my body. What stereotypes in our community may have interrupted you to pursue higher education? I think in the perspective of our community and what we, uh, what we are sort of challenged with in our identity, um, I think it might come as, I, I think it might come in the form of the feeling like an outsider. You know, um, I think that we definitely have a sense of urgency as do, you know, all, all immigrants, but I think it's, it's, it comes in the form of needing to pursue finance or accounting or like something very stable. Um, and again, like respect to people who do that, man, because right. I, I mean, I have a lot of people in my family who are accountants or, or work in finance. There's definitely an opportunity to enjoy it. And I, I do know people who genuinely enjoy it. But I think just, just for me, like I was definitely, I guess, indirectly, you know, swayed toward pursuing one of those two. Well, I, I mean, I'm fortunate because I just knew that I knew that I didn't want to take that route or those routes, right. you know, quite early on. And so... You know, I was able to sort of convey that to my parents and, and all the you know, people that uh, that sort of uh, had a big role in my life quite early on. So I, you know, I can't speak for all folks who, you know, who may not have had the same experience. But I think that you know, tying back to one of the concepts we spoke about earlier was like just being introspective and knowing what you want to do or even knowing what you don't want to do, right. you know, which right. is equally as, as valuable when you try to decide, you know, sort of the, the, the direction of your life. I was in the position when I was, you know, in high school or whatever, where like you feel all that pressure to, you know, people ask you like, oh, what are you going to, what are you going to study? And like, what are you going to do? Right. And like, they're, they're asking you for the sake of conversation. But right. when you answer it, you're like, oh my God, I don't know. What am I going to do for the rest of my life, man? I don't know. Like, how am I supposed to answer that? You know what I mean? Like, it becomes such a, such a loaded question. And so... What I tell a lot of younger people, uh, especially my nieces and nephews, like just knowing what you don't want to do. Just start with that. Start with that. And I don't mean to say, I don't know, if you answer that question with a very sort of uninformed position, then it's not, you know, it doesn't become valid because I've had preconceptions of a lot of different career fields in the past that weren't exactly accurate. So you, you know, you got to check yourself. You got to check yourself. But if it's for the sole sake of, just developing a sense of direction and trying to understand who you are from the highest level possible, 
you don't have to define everything. Like, and I'm, and I'm speaking to the kids now. It's like, you don't have to define everything. You don't have to have all the answers. What you do need to have is a solid understanding of who you are, what you like, what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you want to improve. These are the foundational questions. And if I could turn this to the older folks, you know, maybe, you know, not old, old folks, but like the older folks who are speaking to younger kids, when you ask, you know, when you ask your family members or whoever, you know, what they want to do. Don't ask them, don't ask them, Hey, like, what are you, you know, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? Ask them like, what kind of stuff are you into? What are your favorite mm-hmm. subjects in school? Where do you feel most comfortable in? What are the, some of the, some of the things that you, that you really find interesting in school or outside of school? You know what I mean? Like whether, if, if it's sports, if it's music, like what are things that get you excited? And I think these are the, the, the better questions and the deeper questions, the more important questions right. than, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? To look back at your transition from college to career, it wasn't that traditional. What was that like? What did you do that time in between? Yeah, so I uh, so I finished undergrad um, and was ready to work. But then, as I said earlier, like I, I knew I wanted to travel. Uh, the main sort of bucket list item that I had um, in the back of my mind since I was maybe 16 or so was to, uh, to do the Everest Base Camp trek with right. my dad. Um, and so... The reason why I wanted to specifically do it uh, with my dad was because, so you know, my dad's uh, from Loding in, in, in Kumbu, which is sort of within the Everest region for folks who aren't uh, familiar. So he grew up out there before he moved to Kamandu and, and beyond. But that was his upbringing as a child. That's where he sort of start. That's where he started his his life, really. You know, and that's where my my uh, my ancestors are from. And so, you know, growing up in New York City, I never had the experience of seeing where sort of all my forefathers were from. And so I wanted to do that and I wanted to do it with my dad because I wanted to sort of have the experience of, I wanted him to have the experience of reliving it, but reliving it with the next generation, which is which is myself. You know? And so so I knew that I wouldn't have the opportunity to do it uh, if I started working because it's a long trip. So took it took some time off right after graduating just to sort of like plan the trip and everything. Um, the trip itself was like just over a month, I believe. Mm-hmm. So I was in Nepal for about a month, and the actual trek was about eleven days. So it's uh, six days going up and five days coming down. It's about like eight to twelve hours a day of, of straight hiking. Um, so it was very challenging, but man, I tell you, like it was the. It was like the most experience, the most amazing experience I've had in my life, dude. Wow. It, it like, and I know a lot of, and it's kind of cliche to say like, oh, it kind of like changed the perspective of right. life. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, it really did, man, because it allowed me to see as like this like American brat who, like, you know, grew up with like all the amenities and like all the, the resources here right, right. to see like what people, like for, for one, just being in Nepal, to see what people like me, um, are when I say like me like around my age range are like doing what are they what are they doing to survive mm-hmm. for one um so it was, it was humbling in that aspect but then actually to go up to 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 Everest Base Camp um through that trek and again relive sort of that, that experience for uh, with my dad it was like it was something that allowed me to really see like firsthand like where my roots actually are like who who am I? Who were the people before me? You know, what, what does, what does it mean to be a Sherpa? You know what I mean? In the, in the most sort of high level perspective, it's like, how do I, like, what does it mean for me to be a Sherpa person in New York, you know, doing what I'm doing, getting, being educated, like, and, and, and what was that transition from generations from Kumbu to New York? Right. And so like, just seeing that 
it's almost it was, I was almost like reliving the timeline of my lineage. So that was cool, man. Just like you know, being in, being it. And again, so it was funny because I, um, I was in I was in Nepal. That was my second time going to Nepal. Uh, first time I went was I think I was like thirteen years old or something. Like that. I was a teenager. Um, but that was like a family trip that like my dad was trying to get me to get us to do and like I was like so much of a brat like I, I was like dude I need AC I need like you know McDonald's like I was very like spoiled in that sense well I didn't really get to enjoy it the first time um, but the second time around is like where I really took in Nepal for what it is you know um, as like as the motherland and everything you know it's interacting with with, with pure Sherpa people and like going up to Namche and like actually being there and 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 you know, eating aloo roti with, with, with the locals. Like it was something that it sort of like added context to who I was, who I am as a person. Recently, someone asked me, how do you experience being a Tibetan when you haven't physically been to Tibet? You have been born in a different country and to understand the struggles, what we have been through, how, how do you even connect to Tibet? That was kind of intriguing, and I think it ties back to your story of how you are visiting as a Sherpa, been mainly grown up in a different country. I think so. One thing that that that's a question that that I've I've had different perspectives on for the last few years. I think a person like Eddie Wong, so he's a, um, a restaurant tour, former lawyer, writer, and speaker. And he's also a television show producer uh, for Fresh Off the Boat, so he he speaks a lot about identity and sort of this this um, this dichotomy and like what does it mean to be Asian American? And so I think he offers a really good insight in saying that your identity as an Asian American or your identity as as whatever uh, isn't necessarily defined by the your geographic location it's defined by or you can define it by the way you greet people the way you sleep the way you eat the way you treat your parents the way you speak to people who are older than you younger than you it's these everyday actions that define who you are and and sort of and sort of build that 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 tie to one of your roots or all of your roots um, so, for example, like you bring up uh, you know, being Tibetan in, in America, and previously from Nepal, as a as a Sherpa uh, Sherpa person who grew up in New York City, it's like if you look at the timeline, it gets kind of funky, right? Because it's like, okay, well, you, you know, that's if I were to ask myself that same question, like, what does it mean to be Sherpa? Okay, well, if you tie it back, so again, born in Nepal, came to New York. Before that, you know, my my dad was born in Kumbu, came to Kathmandu. Before that, my parents were born in Tibet, came to Nepal, or came to Kumbu. And it's like before that, maybe, you know, several generations, they came from Mongolia. And it's like, where do we start drawing the border of like, this is who I am, and this is all, only who I am. You know what I mean? And so like, I, I mean, I love having this conversation whenever I'm with uh, folks from Munchik, who, you know, who are obviously like predominantly uh, Tibetan and, and uh, um, sort of either directly from Tibet or like had the, the typical experience of going through, through India. Um, which is like, what does it mean to be a descendant of Tibetan, right? Well, like, if you think about what Sherpas, who, you know, who Sherpa people are, Sherpas are, are pretty much just people from Tibet who right. migrated over the Himalayas right. onto Nepal, and there's just just so happened to be a border around right. Kumbu to say that okay, you're Nepali by national. So it's like, again, it's it's not necessarily you know uh, geography because I think that's just such a it's such a surface level definition of your identity of your culture of your heritage of your ancestry because i i consider i mean like i I actually have like 
quote unquote pure Tibetan people in my family mm-hmm. who who 100% identify as Tibetans or Tibetan Americans. And I and I I, I, I call myself Sherpa one because I that's my last name, but then also because we've sort of created this this sub identity within the Himalayan community and saying like we are Sherpas and this is what it means to be Sherpa. So we we sort of carved out we meaning the entire community sort of carved out carved out a, an, an identity within Himalayans. But something that I've been sort of recently thinking about is you know besides being Sherpa, besides being Guru Marang or you know, or, or, or any, any, any sort of Tibetan, we as Himalayans in general are a minority of a minority of a minority of a minority in, 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 in the U.S. So it's, yes, it's important to define our subcultures within the Himalayan community and respect and love them. But I think in the grand scheme of things, like when you think about sort of the, our lineage going forward, like, it's even more important for us to recognize the fact that we are all Himalayan. We all have very, like we, the, the sort of the, the, the range in our, the differences that we have amongst Tibetans, Nepalis, Bhutanese, etc., is so small. It's, it's so minute. And I don't mean, again, I don't mean to say that it's not important, but when you think about the way that we sort of conduct our communities in New York City and beyond, or just in the States in general, there are only benefits to us sort of uh, unifying as Himalayans. Just recently, I learned that Sherpa in Tibetan means people from East. East meaning East of Tibet, where my father is from. So you and I are probably brothers, man. <laughs> <laughs> And shout out to the, the, all the Himalayan clubs in New York City. Oh, yes, man. definitely. Dude, definitely. The Himalayan club of Baruch, of Logoria, of all the schools. Uh, I know Stony Brook has a big one. The fact that you guys, Hunter, absolutely, throughout the communities, the fact that you guys have defined it as the Himalayan clubs and not the Nepal club or not the Tibet club or not, sure. you know, the Bhutan club, it's the Himalayan club, man. And, sure. and, and, and they, I mean, uh, you know, obviously, like, all of us in the room are, are familiar with folks in, in those groups, but for people who aren't, like, these young Himalayan students and young professionals, they are just doing amazing things, man. And like, when you think about it from the surface level, like, yeah, maybe they'll have like some social events and stuff, um, you know, like bringing people together for a party or like a you know, holiday thing. But like that, that goes a long way because it sort of bridges that gap between our sub identities um, and allows us to, uh, Allows us to see just like sort of the, 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 the premise of this podcast, which is like, you aren't alone, right? There are people who uh, look like you, who, who have the same core values as you, who, um, are, who are sort of like sharing the struggle, let's right. say, um, between sure. us, you know? Sure. And I want to say this too, with, with, you know, since we're on the topic of, of all the Himalayan clubs, I think that um, the reason why it's, it's that much more important for us to do this is because we we have this unspoken duty this 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 responsibility to define how our communities will progress going forward all of us are either first or generation first or second generation immigrants and we are sort of at this position where you know we you know Himalayan people haven't been in, in the US for that long um you know one two May, like maybe three generations at most if like if you were one of the first like right. Nepali or, or, or Tibetan people here 
but the reason why I bring that up is because we, so it's, it's almost like, and like, I don't want to put the pressure on us, but like, it's almost up to us to define what it means to be Himalayan in America from now on. You know what I mean? Like we, you know, we, we all speak English. So, so we're sort of like, uh, we're sort of stepping away from the identity of being an immigrant. So now it's like, okay, we're American, we're here and we're here to stay. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for the communities around us? How are people going to perceive us? You know, what, you know, what, what is it just, just defining those, those core questions, I think really falls on our shoulders, man. Because we are, we are the history. I mean, we are going to be the history. Exactly. Of our, of our future generations. That's how they will see us. Yeah. So after you finished your Everest Base Camp, how did you transition into building your career? Yeah, good question. So, um, so, I, so I did the trek and, um, was like okay so after i finished it like it was like this peak moment um and i was like oh my god like i finally did it like you know, i was just like living off the high for a little bit and then like you know we came back and the, the reality set where it was like oh it's time to make some money now <laughs> i gotta get a job like, and i had some stuff lined up because like i was and the reason why another reason why i was i was really confident in making the trip was because um like i had focused so much on uh, on building my career from the from the the early stages when I was still in school. So like working and, and interning throughout undergrad. So I, I sort of had that confidence of like, I, like I know I could find a job. Like right. It's not going to be a problem for right. me. Right. Um, so I might as well leverage that and do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I, I took a few months where, where I was just like going through interviews and stuff, going through different places that I, I either interned in before or had connections in um, sort of just like, you know, really tapping into my network and seeing where all my friends and, and, and people that I knew worked and then specifically for JetBlue, I um, reached out to a couple folks. And actually, the process for me to actually get into JetBlue was was quite long because I actually I interviewed for a couple positions when I first tried mm-hmm. to to give it a shot and didn't get any of them. And it was like, oh damn, like, I probably won't you know begin this. But I knew like the more research I did for these interviews the more I wanted to work at JetBlue. <laughs> so I was like, dude, like I, I got to find an avenue right. in, you know? And so, so they had their, their internship program and uh, they kind of rebranded it now, but before it was very similar to like an associate uh, role for us, like a summer associate at, at, at the bank um, where it was, I think it was like 35 of us for the summer for 10 weeks. Um, and everybody was placed in an individual team, but you also had to sort of contribute to projects for the entire internship group. And so it, people came from from all over the world, man. That's that was another reason why it excited me so much because I looked at my cohort and like people from from Asia, from Africa, Europe, and like all over the states. And most of them were there because they're like travel junkies, like they just they're they're aviation geeks or, or they just wanted to travel for a living, you know. And so that was a that was a great experience. So it was ten weeks. Uh, and I was already graduated. Uh, the majority of us were already graduated. Um, so it was, it was almost like 10 weeks to find a job. <laughs> but the good part was, you know, we're, we're, we got the foot in the door. So it was really just up to us to sort of like push our way through. And so I think out of 35 of us, there, there may have been about like four or five who kind of stuck through uh, past the internship. Um, I got extended as an intern for a couple months after the program uh, until I landed a, a full-time role. But but yeah, man, we it was a very high stress situation where like we were really going after it, man. But it was good. I loved it. I loved it. I loved that experience. I loved like that that sense of hustle and, and just really trying to go after it. Yeah. You know? Did that internship directly lead to where you are right now? 
professionally? No, no, not at all. I so um, and I guess this is probably like a good good tidbit for for anybody who, who's getting into internships or or, or or is interning right now. So as an intern, like I so I saw this um, I saw this clip from um, Gary V. Gary Vaynerchuk, very popular guy right. online. Um, and so he so I think he's I think he's great. Um, I definitely listen to him every now and then, but sort of like uh, just on a on a maybe on a, on a headline perspective. But he was talking about interns and he was talking about sort of like the, it was quoted as like the best advice for anybody starting an internship or something like that. Right, you know, some, right. some like really catchy thing. Right. But he said something that really resonated with me. So he, he said, um, he was giving advice to like some 20 something year old who was starting an internship. And I think she was asked, she was like, what, like what advice do you have for me? Like what, like how, I'm about to start this internship. You know, I want, I want to know like what the best things for me to focus on are. Um, so he goes like, obviously, you know, do your job, like do what right. you were brought in there to do, um, learn as much as you can from the team and the people around you, mm-hmm. but prioritize the people, prioritize who you're getting in touch with, prioritize expanding your network. Because as an intern, like I tell, I tell um, current and prospective interns this right now, like as an intern, the amount of work that you can contribute to your team or your department is so minimal compared to the benefits that you can gain from growing your network. So what I mean by this, like, yeah, sure. Like you can be a superstar intern and do everything that they ask you to do and just like knock it out of the park. Right. Or like be just super competent, but you're only, you're there for a limited amount of time. Right. And so the, best way for you to get your return on the time that you're putting in and the work that you're putting in is to gain a network because kind of like what we were talking about early on where it was like you know you're going to be and if you don't get the full-time job you're going to be in a different company so it's like that experience is going to be gone what won't be gone is the network you've built what won't be gone is the people that you build relationships with so i kind of took that um and really focused on that and and was like Okay, I'm going to do the job as best as I can and I'm going to work towards it and I'm going to put in as much time and effort as, as I can. But I'm going to prioritize getting to know people. I'm going to prioritize building relationships. And that's exactly what I did. And so it, it was sort of like every time I either uh, like bumped into someone in the hallway, got a quick introduction during a meeting or saw some, you know, saw some something interesting on LinkedIn that they were doing. Um, I, would, I would just always send them a note, like really nice, thoughtful note. Hey, you know, I'm an intern, just trying to learn as much as I can. You know, I think your your, your job or your team or your department's really interesting. Do you have five minutes? Do you have 15 minutes? Do you have 30 minutes? And, it, you know, a lot, of, like I was turned down a lot of times, not directly, but, you know, just no responses. But I was doing it so much that I had a lot of people who actually reached back out to me and was like, yeah, I would love to talk to you. You know, you know, you talk to, you know. And, and I think the main thing was, like just approaching it from a very humble perspective, right? Like I wasn't trying. Like it's funny. I, I've had I've had uh, I've heard stories of of people who reach out as interns or like young professionals, and they're like, like I can offer you this much value, and I, I could do this for you, and I could do that for you, and like like it's good. It's very good to be right. eager, right? Um, but you have to like you have to acknowledge the fact that you're coming in as a as a new person. This person's probably been doing their job for five, ten, twenty, thirty years. Um, so so. Be honest about your intentions, right? Like, uh, I never try to hide the fact that I was trying to learn, you know, and that was the main thing. And especially when, when you reach out to people who are doing something that they really enjoy, if you really enjoy it, all you want to do is you want to tell people about it. You know what I mean? So if you, if you genuinely enjoy it and somebody reach out, reach out, reaches out to you and says, Hey, this is really interesting. I think it's really cool. I would love to learn about what you do and how you got there. They're going to be excited to share. 
Um, and that's sort of like the, the kind of the insights that I got from that experience. Um, so I reached out to a lot of folks and then uh, started sort of naturally gravitating toward the customer experience side of things. So I just from just from openings and timing, working out, uh, you know, knowing the right people at the right time, speaking to the right people at the right time, and then positions opening up at the right time. So I've transitioned over to a full-time role uh, with the customer experience team. So I did that for just about under a year. And that was really just learning about all the uh, all the work that goes behind building a, a an experience at the airport for a customer. So it's really insightful because we the, so the, the three sort of pillars that go under that are um, so airport airport experience, in-flight experience, and the customer support. And so it was like this holistic picture of what is, what is it like to be a JetBlue customer. Um, so that was really cool. And then and then I did that just under a year before I transitioned to a continuous improvement. Going forward now, in the next decade or two, what do you want to accomplish in your professional career? That's a great question. I think um, from an educational perspective, um, so I do want to go forward with an MBA. The reason being, I think that um, one, just for the sake of getting the education, I think it's you know, absolutely important. Although, you know, I mean, again, I was a business undergrad, but I think getting an MBA kind of just like takes me to the next level in terms of being able to be in a position where I can apply that that education where I want to. So it just gives me a little bit more leverage. Um, the second thing is the the entrepreneurial uh, blood, I say, that, 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 that I mentioned earlier. I have several ideas of what I would like to do um, on my own, just sort of projects that I would like to explore. Um, so I'm in like very sort of, dis- I'm, I'm in the discovery phase, let's say, of some of these ideas. Um, so that's definitely something that I, I kind of have like, Again, man, dude, I'm, I'm Sherpa. So, like, I have that itch to do something <laughs> entrepreneurial. You know what I mean? Like, I, it's just, like, in the back of my mind. Um, and so uh, so that's definitely something I want to explore going forward. But I think I think those two will, will keep me pretty busy <laughs> going forward. For someone who is in college or high school, what can they do to enter the field you are in now? So I think, okay, so I'll, I'll take it into the context of um, where a lot of people who have been on my team have ended up or like have, have gone. Um, so a lot of people come from management consulting, come from or go to management consulting um, because the, the job function is very similar as I mentioned earlier. And so um, I think the only difference is consulting, uh, at least at one of the larger firms, is, is probably a lot more demanding in terms of the just the time, like work-life balance. Um, I think being internal gives us the gives us the ability um, to sort of be a little bit more flexible. You know, we're not worried about like billing hours and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I mean, we you know, I'll say that it's not like it's definitely a challenging role. It's definitely a challenging function. Um, but it's there. There are a few differences between uh, what we do and management consultants. So I'd say to start off with learning about what management consultants do, mm-hmm. um, just on a high level, like what is the service that they provide, and 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 what are the um, what are the the expectations of a consultant, and then from there you'll be able to sort of have this high level framework of okay, these are this is what consultants do. Um, what are some of the things that may not be exactly the same as a consult from a consultant to a process analyst, a process improvement analyst? And so, uh, I mean, if folks are like even more curious to get into more detail, like I'm happy to, to talk to anybody sure. who's, who's who's looking for uh, for more insight. But I'd say that I'd say to sort of start off with uh, understanding what a what a management consultant is. 
What advice do you have for the younger generation that are in the process of pursuing a professional career, not necessarily in your field, but any field? Gotcha. Uh, I'd say to any of the younger folks, just experience life, man. You know, just just experience. Like, whatever you do, I honestly, and I, and I really do mean this, whatever you do, just make sure you actually do it. Just make sure you actually want to, you know, just make sure you put things into motion, man. Like, I've got a cousin who is a uh, student at, at RISD, uh, Royal Island School of Design. And, you know, it's, it's like she she has been an artistic mind, like, since a toddler, man. Like, she has always been just sort of this the, the creative type. Like, she always hated, like, systems and, like, rules and, like, you know what I mean? Like, things that confine her. And that was just her personality. And, like, I don't know if, if that's something that she uh, intentionally wanted to do or sort of, like, wanted to sort of... Um, explore within herself and maybe it came naturally i don't know but what i do know is from doing that like she she got a lot of backlash from her parents and like people around her for pursuing the arts um naturally as immigrants like this is not one of the places that we typically want our children to explore but she was like no like i really want to do this and she actually put in the work and put in the time um and got into RISD. you know Rhode Island school of design is one of the top art colleges in, in the u.s and right now she's actually in a uh a program in uh, London or I think she was in London last week, but I think she's, she's in France right now or something like, and I, I honestly can't even keep up with all the things that she's doing. <laughs> she's just like going to all these places and doing all these things. Like I say all that to say, like she knew what she wanted to do or she actually, she, at least she had an idea of what she wanted to do and she did it. Like she put real time and effort towards actually pursuing it, even though, you know, she felt all the backlash and all the, the pushback. Um, she put it into motion. So I think that uh, peeling it back to anybody who's who's younger, who's trying to figure it out, just put things into motion, man. I think, um, you know, a lot of people have, uh, what, is, what do they call it? Paralysis by analysis, right? Like they think, they think way too much about, is this really what I want to do? Is this really what I want to do? And they sort of like try to have all the answers before they even put the first step in. And like, I, and, and like I've been guilty of that too in the past. Uh, but the, the important thing is to just keep it moving, man. Just keep, like, whether it's volunteering your time somewhere, whether it's just doing your background research, talking to people, put things in motion. And, and through that, you, you might find out that the thing that you thought you wanted to do is so different from what it actually, what, you know, what the reality actually plays out to. Like me, like, I thought I wanted to go to law school and I thought I didn't want to be a lawyer because of all the things that I saw and heard. Um, but then when I actually put things in motion, start talking to people, start trying to figure it out what what it actually meant in the in the real world, I was like, this is not what I wanted. This is so different from what I thought it was. You know what I mean? So I, I would just say, put things in motion, man. So we talked about everything from growing up in the city, navigating the different schools, trying to figure out who you are, trying to identify yourself, and uh, struggling to identify who you are, what you want to do, and uh, then ending up in JetBlue as an analyst. It's quite an achievement. We're really grateful for you taking the time today out of your busy schedule. Yeah, man. I appreciate you guys having me out here. It's an honor. It is certainly clear that there are a lot more stories like Tenzing's, and we will try to cover that in the next episode by bringing another professional from our community. We are very much excited to see Tenzing move forward in his professional life and want to wish him luck for his future endeavors. I want to thank all the listeners if you have reached this far. That's our first episode of Behind the Peaks podcast. Please follow us on whatever platform you're listening to and don't forget to leave a review and rating. Until next time, stay professional.